Colossians 1, 24 to chapter 2, verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all the energy that He powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the most effective ways to wear people out and to drive them away from you is to talk constantly about yourself. Perhaps even more effective than that is talking constantly about your children. And maybe even more effective than that is talking constantly about your grandchildren, if you have any. Now, there is that sort of uh, tendency among ministers as well. And there's something that ministers can fall into, and that is talking constantly about their own Ministries, And that's also a way to drive people away and wear them out. If there's any truth to this observation about the effect of talking about ourselves, then we might wonder, as we're reading through Paul's letters, why he not infrequently writes about himself. But as we look at these sections, and they're, as I say, not infrequent, we're looking at one of them today, If we look at them carefully, we will find that there is a method to his talking about himself. There is something, some reason that has to do more with with some other thing than it has to do with his himself or his reputation. We can discover that when he talks about himself, he has other things and people in mind. Namely, the message he preached preaches and other people to whom he preaches it. So as he talks about himself, even though he's talking about himself, his focus is on defending and uplifting the message he preaches and, in addition to that, benefiting those who were listening to him. And we see how he transitions into this talk about his own ministry at the end of last week's text 
where he talks about if you continue in the faith, faith verse, verse 23, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So there's the transition. He pivots to talk about the, the, the fact that he is a minister of the gospel. And here, in these, uh, this section, we could break it into a couple different sections. The rest of chapter 1, he talks about his afflictions for the church in general. We could say the universal church, the church around the world. And then he focuses in on his toil, his struggle for the church in Colossae in chapter 2, the first five verses. And it's striking when Paul talks about his, his labors for the church that he focuses oftentimes on his suffering, his suffering. And that's how he starts this. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in addition to being very striking that he talks about his suffering, he often talks about joy in his suffering. And these are not two things that we tend to put together. Joy in his suffering. And when we look at Paul and his career and his ministry, if you look at it in Acts, or you look at the way he describes it in, uh, in, in the, the letters and the things that happened to him, we might wonder how any human being could handle and survive the kind of suffering that Paul experienced. How one man could experience beatings and shipwreck and stonings and imprisonments and persecutions and banditry and hunger and famine and being exposed uh, to the elements. We might wonder how anyone could experience and survive all of this and not only survive, but also come out of it saying, I rejoice. I rejoice. Now, what is this? How could Paul possibly rejoice in these sufferings? And if we look at this, and here's where the outline might be helpful to you, because I put some some principles about suffering together in a number of verses. Because Paul did not rejoice in suffering in and of itself. His focus was not on suffering as if that were a good thing, but Paul focused on the the things that went along with suffering. The, the other elements that were present with suffering and the products of suffering. And I put these together for you, not exhaustive list, but here's some of the things. Two of them come out in our text today, but I wanted to round this out with some others. And many of these come out in 2 Corinthians. The first is this, comfort, the comfort we experience when we are afflicted prepares us to comfort others when they are afflicted. And he mentions that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. So there's a purpose for others' benefit. The second, affliction for others proves the reality of our love for them. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. And we understand this. If someone is willing to suffer for us, we understand that they truly love us. Affliction for Christ's sake, affliction for Christ's sake, also works for us a future glory. And so Paul had his eye on the prize, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. So a little bit of suffering, light and momentary, as he calls it here, is working for us an eternal weight of glory, if that suffering is for Christ's sake. 
In addition, the fourth, uh, fourth point, affliction experienced by ministers of the gospel proves their genuineness. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4. If you meet a minister of the gospel who is willing to suffer because of the message that he preaches, then that proves the genuineness of that minister's ministry. And now the final two are the ones we find in this text, although that last one actually is maybe hinted at in our text. The final two. Afflictions, and this would probably be number one on Paul's list, Afflictions identify us with Christ and conform us to Christ. In Philippians, a letter that was written apparently at the same time that uh, he wrote Colossians from prison, probably in Rome, he said, I want to be found in him, Philippians 3.9, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Why did He want to share in these sufferings, these Christian sufferings, these sufferings with Christ? So He could be like Christ. So He could be conformed to Christ and identified with Christ. And that's what we see as we get back to Colossians 1, 24. And the last one is this, and we see this in chapter 2 of Colossians, the first two verses, and the last, the last uh, in this list of, of the benefits of affliction for Christians. Afflictions are means of fruitful ministry. Basically, there will not be fruitful ministry without affliction, without suffering. So let's go back to our text. In verse 24, it says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And then he adds something that is quite startling. He says, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. At first glance, this sounds to us, if we know about the theology of the New Testament, this sounds to us wrong to talk about what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ for his church. Now, we should not interpret the scripture Uh, especially if it's the same person writing, we should not interpret Paul to be contradicting Paul from one verse to the next. And so we ought not to receive this as if he were saying that there is something missing in the, the sacrificial death of Christ, that something has to be added to it. In fact, the whole tenor of this letter is that Christ is preeminent and what He did is sufficient. And so in, the, in, in this letter that exalts Christ and talks about the sufficiency of His work, it would be impossible, inconceivable, to find any suggestion that Christ's death was somehow insufficient to accomplish the salvation of His people. So if we, if we discard that possible interpretation, then what can this possibly mean? Well, in the context, the context tells us. What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about afflictions, suffering that he suffered in his ministry. And what is his ministry? His ministry was getting the gospel about Jesus' suffering out to people. So, what can this possibly mean? Well, it means this. Um, there's, There's nothing missing in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. But at the same time, Christ's suffering is not complete, is not complete until the message about that suffering gets to the ends of the earth. 
there is an incompleteness to the gospel, not not the, the sufficiency of the work of Christ, but an incompleteness to the gospel until that gospel gets to whom it is destined to get. And so what was lacking? What was lacking was the suffering necessary to get the gospel to the ends of the earth, because that's what Paul was describing here. His own suffering to get the gospel out. So Christ suffered once for all. It was finished, sufficient to satisfy the demands of the law for all God's people. Nothing could be added to that. But that message needs to be taken to the ends of the earth, and the way it's going to get to the ends of the earth is through the suffering of God's people. There is no way to get it to the ends of the earth without suffering. That's what's lacking. I think I've I've told you before about an experience I had. I got to go to Korea and South Korea, and tour the city of Seoul. And I was amazed by many things. But one of the amazing amazing things about the city of Seoul uh, is the number of churches. There are Christian churches everywhere. Everywhere. And I asked myself, how did this happen? And then our, our host took us to the missionary cemetery. The foreign missionary cemetery. And we walked around that cemetery, and we saw tombstone after tombstone after tombstone. And these were people, some of them died very young, some of them died old. But these were people who gave their lives for the gospel. And then we saw many little tiny tombstones as well. And some of those just had dates on them. They didn't have names because these babies hadn't lived long enough. They didn't even receive names yet. And I was very moved by that. And then I had the answer to my question, why were there so many churches? Why are there so many churches today in Seoul, Korea? Because of the people who are resting in that cemetery. They gave their lives to get the gospel to the people of Korea. That's why the gospel has flourished there. And we have to be honest and say one reason the gospel is not getting out faster today is because our unwillingness to suffer for the gospel to get it out to the ends of the earth. Now, Paul says that he delighted to do that. He delighted to do that. He delighted in his sufferings because he knew they were, they were filling up. They were filling up the gospel by getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what it's going to take in our generation. That's what's going to take in every generation. Now, the rest of this this first part here in the rest of chapter 1 is a cascade of ideas. Have you ever been in a conversation? Maybe it's a conversation with yourself. I do this, not infrequently. I find myself thinking about something. And then I ask myself, how did I get to be thinking about this? And then I, and then I try as best I can to go back in my mind and find the train of thought that got me there. Or you're in a conversation with other people, and the conversation has has shifted dramatically, and somebody says, how did we get on this topic? And then sometimes you're able to go back and trace the train of thought that got you there. Well, that's how these verses are, and and it's a cascade of ideas. It's it's a a verse that that mentions an idea, which then leads to another idea, to another idea, to another idea, to another idea, and they they pile up here. And there there are a number of different ideas, but they all connect. And, And we're going to try to follow the connection here. So in verse 24, 
He says, the body, his body, that is the church. That's the first idea, talking about the church. And then Paul says, well, regarding the church, I'm a minister in the church. Verse 25, of which, of which the church, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. So, he was a minister of the gospel. And by the way, if you go back to see how Paul was called to be a gospel, suffering was part of his calling. When, when he became a believer in Christ, when he met him on the way to Damascus and Ananias was sent to him, he said, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my sake. But he's the one. He's the one that's going to be taking this message to, to high and low, near and far. So, first idea, church. Second idea, Paul, minister of the church. And then, from that, Paul talks about what is the work of a minister of the gospel. Verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship, the administration from God that was given to me for you. And here it is. This is the administration. This is the stewardship. To make the word of God fully known. That's what a minister of the gospel is to do. To make the Word of God fully known. That is the ministry. And then, what is that Word of God? So we have the Word of God introduced. And then the Word of God is explained in verse 26. The Word of God, that is, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. Now we need to to understand biblical terminology here. When we find the word mystery in the New Testament, it almost always refers to something that was once hidden and is now revealed. It was once what we would call mysterious because we think of mysteries as something that we can't understand. But a mystery in the New Testament is something that was hidden in the past. It was mysterious in our, in our minds in the past, but it's no longer mysterious because now it's been made known. It's more, more like perhaps what we would call a riddle. It, it was there for a while and people were scratching their heads and trying to figure out the answer to the riddle. But once you have the answer to the riddle, it's no longer what? It's no longer a riddle because you have it. You understand it. It's clear. And so, this Word of God that ministers of the Gospel are to make fully known is this mystery. And he says here, this mystery was hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed. Now revealed. And it is to His saints, to believers, to the holy ones, to the ones who have been set apart. And he says, to them... God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And then he tells us what the mystery is. The mystery in verse 27, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What's the mystery? Read the Old Testament. Read it through and through. Read the Old Testament. And you will end the Old Testament saying, I know something's coming. I know something huge is coming. I know this this Old Testament, it it ends without giving us a conclusion. It's preparing the way for something grand, preparing the way for something big. The the prophets foretold, the the law prefigured, the, 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 the poetry anticipates, 
And what is this big thing? What is this big answer? And, I, and it, there's a focus on Israel all through this, but then all of a sudden uh, there is this, this side trip that brings the nations into purview. So I know that there's something huge that's coming, and it's not just going to be for Israel. And I know it has to do with the king. I know it has to do with the prophet. I know it has to do with the priest. I know it has to do with an anointed one. I know it has to do with salvation, and it's going to involve all the nations. What is the answer? What is the answer to this riddle? How does this mystery get solved? And Paul says, this is how the mystery gets solved. It's Christ in you. And who is the you? In you, the Gentiles. In you, the nations. This is the answer to the mystery. This is the explanation of the Old Testament. It's Christ for the nations. Christ for all. That's what ministers of the Gospel are to make fully known. And Paul says, we did that. Verse 28, we did that, we do that. Him we proclaim, this Christ in you, which is your hope of glory. Him we proclaim. This is what we do. And now Paul goes back to second or first person plural. He was talking about himself, and now he includes Timothy and others. Him we proclaim. And then he says, oh, by the way, proclaiming, this is what proclaiming involves. And he defines proclamation. Proclamation involves warning or exhortation or counseling, warning everyone. And it also involves teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So what is the work of proclamation of this mystery that has been made known? It involves warning, it involves exhortation, and it involves teaching. It is not a simple one-off little thing, it, it involves constant instruction, and we find that Paul did that in all of his all of his all the churches he visited. Even if he got run out after a few days, he was going back in or sending people back in or writing them letters to exhort them, to encourage them, to warn them, to teach them. That's what it means. And the the goal of that, the goal of that warning, the goal of that teaching we find at the end of twenty nine, that we may present everyone, everyone mature or perfect. Uh, it could be translated either way, mature or perfect in Christ. If it's mature, it could be in this life, if, if the word should be perfect, then it's probably thinking about the last day, that, that, that they might be able to present everyone perfect in Christ on that last day. And then in verse 29, For this I toil, struggling, it's the word from which we get agonizing, agonizing with all His energy that He powerfully works in me. So he's kind of come full circle from his sufferings to his agony to his struggling. Do you see the, how this goes? This one idea leading to the other? Church. I'm a minister of the church. A minister of the church preaches the word. What is the word? It's the mystery. What is the mystery? It's Christ in you. Him, this Him, Christ, we proclaim. What does it mean to proclaim? It means to admonish and it means to teach. And what's the goal of, of teaching and admonishing? It's to present everyone as perfect in Christ. And what will it take to accomplish that? It will take agonizing toil. So that's how he gets from one idea back to the idea with which he started. And then, in chapter 2, he focuses on the, the Colossians and the Laodiceans and the others who had not seen him face to face. He says, uh, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. This might sound a little odd. We know how he struggled for 
And this is that same word from which we get agonized. Uh, how great an agony, how great a struggle I have for you. But he hadn't ever visited them. How was it that Paul struggled and agonized over them when he hadn't even visited them? We understand how he had for the Philippians. He got beaten. He got thrown in prison. He got he got run out of town. Same in Thessalonica. We we know how he how he struggled in some of these places. But what about for those for whom uh, who had whom he had never visited? Well, I I, uh, I mentioned before that he was probably behind, not probably he was behind behind the evangelization of Colossae, and he sent Epaphras in to do the work. I don't know if you've ever. I'm sure you have watched a, a sporting events where there, there's a team sport and there's a, a coach on the sideline, uh, particularly sports like football or soccer or basketball, where the coach is there trying to get them to, to do what he wants them to do. Sometimes they do it, sometimes they don't. Um, and then sometimes after something happens, they zoom in on the coach's face. And I think, I don't know why anybody would want to be a coach. Because the one who suffers the most of everyone is the coach. Everything is, is on his shoulders. And, and I, that, I think that's how, how Paul was. Even if he wasn't the one running the plays. He ran the plays in Corinth. He ran the plays himself in Philippi and in Berea and in, and in uh, uh, Ephesus and Corinth. But he wasn't getting to run the plays in Colossae or in Laodicea uh, or in Iriopolis or the other cities. But he was still the coach. And so, and so all the weight of the team was upon Cam, and he says, I want you to know, even though you've, I've never met you, that, I, that I'm struggling on your behalf as well, as I'm behind this effort to get the gospel to you. And he says the, the goal, he says, what is the goal? Verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged. That was, that was the whole point of his struggling, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, in case you didn't get it the first time, which is Christ. There it is again, the definition of the mystery. So he says, um, the goal of his struggles were the encouragement and the unity of believers. It was all for them. He's talking about himself, but it was all for them. And the first desired result was abundantly rich understanding. He says, uh, a full assurance of understanding the knowledge of God's mystery. And the second was that this, uh, this mystery, which is Christ, so it's, it's understanding and knowledge, understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And then he adds, in whom, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Where are you going to find knowledge? It's in Christ. Where are you going to find wisdom? It is in Christ. So um, he, he emphasizes, uh, and we find this throughout this letter, we found it already, emphasis on wisdom, emphasis on knowledge, and emphasis on Christ. And finally we get to an explicit mention of why this emphasis. Verse 4, I say this, and he explains why he's saying this, I say this, in order that no one may delude you, with plausible arguments. Now, we have suspected that there was something going on in the church in Colossae. We have suspected because of, because of some of the language and some of the things he's mentioned, but now it's explicit. Something was going on. There were some eloquent preachers that had invaded the uh, Lycus Valley, and they were disseminating some fine-sounding arguments among the believers there. And some of them were beginning to, to be persuaded. 
Now, I'm going to spoil a little bit. Um, I won't tell you all, but what you'll find is this emphasis on Christ. Why would Paul be exalting Christ so much in this letter? In, in ways that are, are um, even beyond, uh, in terms of the language used, some of the things he says elsewhere. Why would that be? Well, the danger was people were saying, yes, Christ, but also. And this is a, this is a perennial danger among Christians to say, yes, Christ, but also this. So these, these fine-sounding arguments were, were arguments about Christ plus. Christ plus. And these were, these were plausible. These were fine-sounding. Yes, Christ. It didn't seem like a denial of Christ. It seemed like an affirmation of Christ. And then adding to Christ. Christ plus. But, but throughout this letter, throughout the New Testament, we find that the emphasis is not Christ plus, but Christ alone. Christ alone. And um, this contrast will become more and more evident as we work through this letter. But for now, for now, we can note that the goal of the Christian life is not to start with Christ and get beyond Him into greater things, but it is to know Christ, this mystery, now revealed to all the saints deeper and deeper. After this, this is kind of a shot across the bow, this, this one mention here, and then he will talk in, in following sections, he will take on these false teachers very, very specifically. But then he goes right back to encouragement. Verse 5, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, because they're member of, of the body, members of the body of Christ, they have a spiritual unity. He says, I'm there with you, rejoicing to see. Now that's interesting, he already said what? He'd never seen them, but he says, rejoicing to see he had received a message from Epaphras, and for Paul, he, he was with them in spirit, and he was seeing what was going on there. I rejoice to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, this is encouraging, because unlike in other churches, the error had not yet taken over. And so, uh, in general, they were doing well. And so, in general, the Colossians were prospering in their faith, they were orderly, they were firm. But there was this looming threat coming up that he'll be dealing with. But that did not, uh, that did not overwhelm their faith yet. And they were, they were dealing with it. And they wanted to deal with it early on before it took over. And one of the ways that Paul addressed this threatening error was by talking about his own ministry. And, and that's the reason he brought up his own ministry and explained his own ministry. But I want you to see something. Even though he was talking about his own ministry, the hero of his story is not Paul. The hero of his story is Christ. And even though he was talking about his own ministry, the goal of his talking about his own ministry was not to build himself up, but to build up his hearers. But I want you to see something that Paul got out of this, out of his ministry. And it's mentioned in verse 24 of chapter 1. And it's mentioned in verse 5 of chapter 2. Verse 24, Now I rejoice. Verse 5, Rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So Paul talked about his ministry. But he talked about his ministry to exalt Christ. And he talked about his ministry to benefit others. But what did Paul get out of this? Paul got out of this what we all want. He got joy. And he got joy even, even in the midst of and even because of the things he was suffering. 
And so, here's the takeaway. Talk about yourself all you like, just so long as Christ is the hero of your story. And talk about yourself all you like, just so long as you're building up others by the story that you are telling. And if you tell your story with Christ as the hero, and you tell your story to benefit others, you get something out of it. You get that which we all seek. And that is joy. Lasting joy. No matter what else might be happening in our lives. Let's pray. Our God, may Christ always be the hero of our stories. As we talk about our stories, may they lead to Jesus and may they lead others to Jesus. That what we say might benefit others and that we might receive the joy because we're all seeking joy. May we find it in Jesus and telling our story, which is His story, the story of His work in our lives. We do thank You for Christ, the hope of glory for us. We thank You for Christ, the the mystery revealed. And we thank You that that mystery was not just for the Jews, but for people who were so far off like us. We thank You that Christ in us is the hope of glory, the mystery revealed, the riddle satisfied. And we pray that through us, that it would get to others. And Lord, that You would make us willing even to suffer, that others might might know Jesus. And that as we suffer, that we would know that joy of being identified with the One who suffered for us. And we pray in His name. Amen.